0: Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me as usual. Darcy, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing pretty
1: good. It's finally starting to cool down. It feels nice out.
0: It doesn't feel like hell anymore on Earth? No,
1: it was really humid. Um, I went for a run yesterday morning when I got up, and it was really, really humid, but it was only about 70 degrees, so I can't really complain about that. It's actually like, I don't even think it's 70 right now outside. Wait, you went for a run? I did.
0: I thought your knee was all ma- messed up. It is.
1: I'm trying to get back into running, but yeah, my knee kind of prevent. Like I'll run for like two or three days in a row and then my knee hurts. So I'm trying, but I mean, it's not, it's probably not a good idea, but I'm still trying to get back into running.
0: I've kind of heard mixed um, reviews on running with knee issues. There was a bunch of studies that I read that said, if you do it in moderation, it's actually good for you because it strengthens.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But if you overdo it, it could really do damage. And then some people said none at all. And then there's just a whole... I've heard different things from different doctors on that. What about yeah, you?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's like this is a research career for people like running and you know so there's a lot of different research out there and there's different research on what on whether or not you should run on concrete versus like a track or versus gravel or grass or so i mean there's a lot of, of different research out there um and with stuff like this you can kind of find research that says what you want it to say like if I really wanted to I could find something that said research that said like running with a knee injury is actually better for me than not but yeah. honestly I'm just going by how my knee feels if my knee really hurts I'm not going to go for a run if it doesn't if it feels pretty good I'm going to go for a run so yeah. that's kind of just how I'm basing it but
0: I-, yeah. I feel like I have to run like it to me it's like the most efficient exercise it's I feel good. It gives Mm -hmm. me an endorphin rush. Like, it's just... I've had some knee issues off and on since I moved to Illinois that have been kind of prohibitive at Mm -hmm. times. But since I started with the TENS therapy, Mm -hmm. like, I haven't had any pain. It's just now kind of feels, like, kind of swollen sometimes and maybe a little unstable. But Mm -hmm. I haven't experienced any pain in in months. Yeah. After starting the TENS.
1: My thing with running is I, I don't want to... Drive to the gym to do cardio. Like, just on principle, that really bothers yeah, me. That's annoying. So, I I like to either walk out of my house and go for a walk or go for a run, or I have the trainer so I can ride my bike in my house. So, I just honestly, it's just about like the fact that I just on principle don't like going to the gym to do cardio. Yeah. Unless I'm, I'm going to do lift weights. weights. Yeah.
0: I don't want to go. Yeah. Um, well, I went for a run today. As well. It was beautiful yeah. out just in the mid 70s, low 80s and ran into the most adorable. I wish I would have got some pictures of it, but I was too distracted. Puppy, this little pointer Aww. puppy. And I stopped and I played with her a little bit and talked to the owner. And I was just like, oh, my God, it made me want to get a dog again. Yeah. So bad. Her name was Bernie. Bernie. Short for Bernice. Oh, my God. Aww. She was so cute. She was probably eight weeks old. Aww. Just wanted to chew and slobber. And she had the yeah. puppy breath. And it was just like, oh, I just wanted to pick her up and steal her. She was so yeah. cute.
1: I take Dahlia for runs with me when I go, but she's not a good runner. Like, Layla was a great S- runner. Some
0: dogs just are not. Like, yeah, Dookie she's could, not a Dookie good had runner. had a hard time running, he yeah. would stop and sniff at mm-hmm. every, like every other step he would yeah. stop to sniff something and I would trip over him sometimes. He just, yeah. It wasn't good. I mean, he needed the exercise, but like he just was more interested in everything that was out there and didn't want to run endlessly without stopping to sniff and, and everything like that. So I always felt yeah. bad taking him on a run because I didn't. I wanted to give him the opportunity to stop and smell the roses, so to speak
1: dolliest thing is she gets tired so like by the end of my run I'm basically dragging her along with me which then just makes me more tired so I'm kind of like I don't but like I don't know but I mean you know it's good for us we go for runs and then she's tired (laughs) the rest of the day which is nice so
0: and then you feel good because you're yeah she's not sitting at home bored so let's kind of mix things up a little bit now and maybe do some emails at the beginning of the podcast i we've got some really nice ones lately and i think there is just sort of this camaraderie that people are now experiencing with the quarantining and the stay-at-home orders and the covid stuff that is just kind of inspiring people i think to write in more to the podcast and i couldn't be more pleased about that yeah what do you think
1: yeah, um, I definitely think, I mean, I know like people were not listening to as many podcasts when this first all started because everybody was still trying to work from home and yeah. everybody's schedule was all messed up, but it seems like more people are starting to listen to podcasts again and maybe the numbers are picking back up. So I guess maybe some people are, more people are having time to write in also.
0: Yeah, our numbers are definitely shooting up. And there was a point where I started to feel a little bit discouraged because we'd had a couple people kind of make some comments that kind of made me feel as though, you know, are, am I doing the right thing? Is this something that I really want to continue to do long-term? And I felt a little bit discouraged. And, you know, maybe that was a lot of what was going on in, in the, on earth right now with mm-hmm. the COVID and the job security questions and moving across the country and not really having any friends in the area that I live in. And I just felt a little bit discouraged and kind of sad. And then a couple people started writing in and it just, it's made me feel... Happy again. (laughs) Oh, good. But um, this woman wrote us. She said, you guys make me so happy. (laughs) Until about a year and a half ago, I worked in a large office environment with about 20 other people, mostly women. We had such amazing conversations about everything under the sun. We worked in the editorial department of a national Canadian women's lifestyle magazine. So no topic was off limits. So she's a Canadian gal, which is cool. My family is Canadian. Yay, Canadian. Anyway, um, the circumstances changed, and I work alone in my sad basement home office now. My co-workers were such smart, talented, funny women, and hanging out with them was just the best way to spend my time. It's just something that I really, really miss, but enter BFD. I'm not sure how I found your podcast. I think it was on Spotify after I learned about the Jeff Davis 8 Oh, on that one. Go listen to that episode. If you haven't already, it's it is literally our most popular episode now. It's got about a thousand uploads. Wow. But Jeff Davis ate both from watching the murder in the Bayou documentary and reading the book. Did you read that book?
1: That's the book I used for the, the references for that. Yeah, it's an incredible book. Oh,
0: Nice, nice. She said it just completely blew my mind. And I was looking up podcasts that delved into these deaths a little more. In any case, I have been such a big fan for a while now. Every day when I'm working, I listen to an episode or two and feel like I'm back in the office surrounded by really good friends talking about the world's crazy true crime stories. I love hearing about your days, school, work, house, dogs, etc. And obviously insane serial killers (laughs) and other grisly tragedies. (laughs) Right? I can't tell you how much it helps me get through the day. At the end of each episode, you ask listeners to get in touch and let you know if there's anything you should be doing differently. I have zero complaints. Keep doing what you're doing. It all works for me. Best, Suzanne.
1: Oh, thanks, Suzanne. Wait, there's a
0: PS. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she put a PS in here, which is really interesting. I just listened to the episode about Colin Pitchfork from July, and with regard to the open jail system, I think what happens is that convicts have to wear ankle monitors or similar things when they're out and about. It definitely wouldn't work for everyone. Though, isn't that what Jeffrey Epstein had going on? Obviously, he's not a great example of your average inmate, but still, I guess some states must have some kind of programs. I know that here in Canada, our system has similarities to both the one in the UK and yours, although we do not have a privatized prison system. Frankly, I can't see how that would be beneficial for inmates in any possible way. Mm -hmm. There might even have been an episode of Law & Order SUV about that. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. So thank you so much, Suzanne. Like your comments just made me so happy. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for writing in to the show. Um, just the camaraderie and that kind of thing. I, I would have to agree with you. It's, it's hard not having that on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. I used to have a volleyball league that I did three days a week and I would go and talk to the ladies there. I don't have any of that anymore. Yeah. I don't have coworkers. I don't have my volleyball friends. Darcy is pretty much my only link to anything outside the it's office it's funny the way
1: she talked about like just talking about everything and then talking about true crime i mean that's literally how you and i became friends is at that volleyball league. we would just sit there and we would just talk about like serial killers and crap like that and just like and then from that became this idea all the other girls yeah. were
0: there. <laughs> <laughs> well
1: even we i would i would do a good live commentary of the volleyball games while they were happening but but uh Absolutely. i mean from that became this idea to do this podcast so as i mean that's yeah. exactly what kind of our intent was with that. So that's super cool to hear that.
0: Good girl conversation is always Mm -hmm. a winner. Keep listening, keep up the comments, suggestions, always appreciated. Um, Another email says we love your podcast. COVID-19 has prevented my book club from meeting in person for the last six months, but we still get to gather on zoom and talk about what's going on in our lives. One of the girls brought up your podcast and a few of us started listening. Now we chat about it on a regular basis. Thanks for doing what you're doing, and with honesty and straightforward realness, you two women are the real deal. Please keep doing what you're doing; it helps all of us make it through these challenging times. Stacy in Michigan,
1: thanks, Stacy of Michigan. I want to be part of a book club.
0: Right? <laughs> I'm like, which book club was it? Can we join?
1: I know, right? Can you send us an <laughs> to that book club?
0: I want to be in a book club. I know. I've always <laughs> wanted to be part of a book club for the reason, like, you can talk and like have ladies to associate yeah. with and like do the whole thing, but. I don't know if I would feel okay with having being forced to read a book <laughs> a certain amount That's of time. The thing. See,
1: I don't think people, I don't think other people enjoy the types of books I read. Like the true crime stuff is one thing that, like, I have a whole other subsection of books. Like, I just finished Ma- Madeleine Albright's um, memoir about growing up in Prague, and then I just started another one about Budapest in 1900. Like, I don't think most people are interested in those kind of books. Yeah. So I don't know how
0: I don't really read great. I'll be for a
1: book club. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean i used to read a ton but now i don't really right. read anything i'm doing so much writing these days for my own books right i don't spend my time reading i sp- spend my time writing so yeah um i guess that's good and bad um next email says here's the topic line says huge fan in florida i'm such a huge fan and can't believe it took me this long to find you too i'm also from san diego originally and have what, been what? a true crime fan since junior high whoop whoop My favorite episodes are the ones on Elizabeth Holmes and Lori Vallow and anything else current event related. Your take on things with legal aspects, medical expertise, and well-balanced opinions is wonderful. Don't stop being real with your comments and and opinions. It seems like every podcast believes they need to be PC all the time. You two seem so real and down to earth that you could be sisters or neighbors. I can't wait to see what you two have in store each week and tune in anxiously each week to find out what topics you're discussing. I tell my friends about your podcast whenever I can. Keep up the fantastic work, Darcy and Sarah. Your loyal fan, Jill. Thanks, Jill. Right? That's funny because, like, the last
1: episode we released, I think we deleted, like, a 20-minute argument we had. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> we started in on talking about sports or something like that And we were, oh my god, we were blasting each other Well, I was mostly blasting Darcy Darcy was like, can I just talk? <laughs> I was like, you got, you got to say your piece, I want
1: to say my piece <laughs> That's really Sometimes
0: funny. we do get into things here yeah. on the show uh, It can be a little bit challenging Because both Darcy and I are both um, very verbal and we both like to argue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Darcy could have been an attorney. I think she likes to argue that much. And she comes at it from all perspectives. I like a
1: debate. I like to, I don't want to argue and like get you to be on my side. But I like to debate and, and kind of elicit. I like to make people explain why they feel so, a certain way. Like, it's not just good enough to be like, well, I think this. I, to me, it's got to be like, you have to back that up. Because that's how I kind of base my like opinions on. So yes. I like to elicit those. There's opinions of other people, too.
0: Yeah. Darcy's really good at that. So um, trust me, we've had many episodes that we've recorded (laughs) where we've had to cut out like 20 minutes of side discussions (laughs) because it was not related to the current case. And we wanted to keep the episode under two hours. (laughs) Yeah.
1: But I mean, but that's I mean, that's the thing is that we we do have arguments. And then like literally 30 seconds later, it's like, all right, should we get back to the case? And we just move on. So that's why, that's why I think this works. And that's why I enjoy it.
0: Yeah. So thank you so much for those emails, ladies, all female responses this week. Awesome. We really, really appreciate you guys and just are so thankful for the listeners that take time out of their days to write to us and say something nice. It's way too easy nowadays for people to go on to Yelp and Apple podcasts and all kinds of other different things and make nasty comments or be negative and i think that it's easy i've done it myself i'm not gonna lie um you get discouraged you get frustrated you get angry you get mad at the world and you your first reaction is to lash out and to just say nasty things or negative things and i just don't think those sorts of things are helpful during this period in time where all of us are just trying to survive we're just trying to get through the day it's just it's scary it's it's anxiety-inducing out there right now. You don't know if friends and relatives are going to get sick or going to die or gonna, you're, if you're going to lose your job. It's scary out there right now. Mm-hmm. And it's just we need these positive influences and these people in our lives who can enrich us and, and uplift us and just be really positive. And I don't mind constructive criticism. If there's something that you think we can fix, please tell us. Like If it's an easy fix and you think that we could incorporate it quickly easily and efficiently i'm all for that but i have to think about this on a constant basis myself because i am the first one to complain or criticize and it's just this is this podcast in itself has been a huge 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 lesson for me in humility and understanding that i'm not always right and understanding that everybody has different opinions and to be sensitive to that so
1: Mm mm-hmm yeah, we're all just doing our best. I mean, especially right now, these are really, really difficult times. So we're all just doing our best. And it's kind of nice to when that's recognized. Like, it's not perfect, no. but you yeah. and I are who we are. And it's nice when people write in and say they appreciate that and laugh at it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it takes courage. It takes balls. It takes energy. It takes time and effort to put out a podcast. And we don't get paid for this. We do it because we love it. This is our thing. This is our passion, so um, we appreciate those of you who can see that and hear that in our our efforts. So thank you so much for recognizing that. Yeah, but anyway, let's jump into the topic for the day. What do do you have for us, stars?
1: Oh boy, this is a bear, and I kind of didn't realize how much I was biting off when I started to look into this, and I had this idea. So there's a whole lot that I'm not including, and. I'm going to give you my resources and references so that if you want to go and get this information for yourself, you can. Because ultimately what happens on this show is that I read the references or Sarah and I read these references and resources and we decide what we think is important. That may or may not be what you think is important. So that was kind of no more evident to me than when I started getting into this one. So this is the story of Karen Silkwood. Good one, good one. And if you've read the Wikipedia page, you might be kind of astonished at how much more there is to the story so I did pull from a couple different articles and I've I've started to dive into a book about it but I I wasn't able to finish this book in time so I fully admit that but I did try and supplement that information with some other articles so let's just get right into it Karen Silkwood was born in Longview Texas on February 19th 1946 I think that's a cool name by
0: the way Silkwood
1: yeah it's pretty good And by all accounts, she was a really great student. She made all A's and she earned her way into the National Honor Society by the time she graduated high school in 1964, Okay, which is more than I can say for myself. I was a terrible student until I was in my master's program. And not surprisingly, given everything that we're going to talk about, chemistry was her best subject. Right.
0: Which is also rare during that time period mm-hmm. because women in science and scientific careers and and um, studies was not very common in that period of time. Right here in the U.S., at least,
1: and it's more so now. It's more popular, but it is still there's you know we are still in the mi- minority, women in f- in STEM fields. So, um, especially in 1964, this was huge. So, she earned a scholarship to study medical technology at nearby Lamar College, but she's actually not going to finish college. Do you know why?
0: She got pregnant?
1: She met a boy. So the summer after she graduated high school, she meets Bill Meadows, who's visiting Texas for the summer. He's originally from Los Angeles. And they keep in touch during her first year in college. But by the following summer, they're together for about three weeks before they elope. And over the next seven years, they would have three kids and would actually end up filing for bankruptcy because... Bill had some expensive hobbies. He liked to race motorbikes and things like that. He also drank a lot. And there was an affair. Mm. So he, Bill was having a long-term affair with a woman named Kathy. And when Karen demanded that he leave Kathy, Bill came up with a counteroffer. He said, I'll give what? you a note.
0: Who the hell comes up with a, a counteroffer? <laughs>
1: what the heck? Here's what he says. He says, I'll give you a no contest divorce, but I'm going to take custody of the three kids. Anyway, that's his who counter does that? offer. It's a terrible offer. So, obviously, at first, Karen refuses, but then, after a little bit more of this miserable life that she's in, in August of 1972, one morning, Bill wakes up to find that Karen has left in the middle of the night. Okay. She didn't leave a note, she didn't say where she was going. You know, the next thing that they know, in court they're for the still divorce. Together. They didn't... They're, they're married, but she, they they file for divorce after this.
0: But they're still sleeping together.
1: But not after she left him.
0: In the same bed.
1: I, I, <laughs> I don't know if they were in the same bed or if they were just in the same house. He may have woken up and okay. saw that she wasn't in the bedroom she had. I'm not sure. It's not very clear.
0: Interesting. So okay.
1: they file for the divorce. And in the divorce proceedings, Karen doesn't even show up to court. All she says is she just wants to return to her maiden name of Silkwood. It's all she wants. She doesn't file for custody of her kids or anything like that. Wow. Karen ends up moving to Oklahoma City, and she starts working for the Kerr-McGee Metallography Laboratory in nearby Crescent, Oklahoma, as a laboratory analyst. So Kerr-McGee made plutonium pellets for fuel rods for a nuclear plant in Washington State, in Hanford. Oh. And... If you recall back to the episode we did on Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, which is episode number 80, the first atomic bomb was made using uranium, but the second atomic bomb was made using plutonium. Interesting. Okay. And plutonium is not a naturally occurring element, but it's a derivative of uranium. And it's highly radioactive, so it doesn't take a whole lot to build an atomic bomb. Hmm. And... The idea behind nuclear energy is that it's basically a cleaner and more efficient way to create power than fossil fuels. So that's like the big push in the early 70s, or I guess after, any time after the nuclear bomb was invented. So maybe from 1946 on, um, that's this big push, is that it's cleaner, it's more efficient, mm-hmm. right? And nuclear science is really, really, really confusing, to me so uh, yeah. um the best i can kind of explain from the very last episode of chernobyl which if you haven't watched chernobyl it's fantastic you should watch it on hbo but the best i can explain is that the fuel rods are used to provide fuel to the nuclear reactor core and the core is where the nuclear fission takes place okay so that's like the actual part of the that makes the energy so Karen's job was quality control, and what she would do is she would randomly select these plutonium pellets from a batch, and she would hold unexposed X-ray film against them to look for the gamma rays. And so the idea is that the plutonium is supposed to be evenly distributed throughout the pellet. Okay. But if it's not, these little hot spots would show up on the X-ray once they developed that film. Hmm. All right? Okay. So... She also would check the fuel rods themselves for cracks, making sure there was no plutonium leaking or anything like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And while, when she first started working there, she also joined the local branch of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, so the OCAW. And three months after she started work at Kerr-McGee, she and her fellow union workers went on strike to demand higher wages, better training, and improved health and safety standards. And the strike lasted about ten weeks, and the employees went back to work basically with the same benefits they left with. So they really didn't gain anything from the strike. All right. And the Kerr McGee at the time was like a one point six billion dollar company. So like it was like this little group in Oklahoma striking against these like huge, this huge company. So they they weren't really inclined to give them anything.
0: Are they still in business?
1: Kerr McGee. I'm not sure if Kerr McGee is. Okay,
0: maybe they got bought out or.
1: Yeah conglomerated
0: with somebody else.
1: Right. So while Karen wasn't really interested in union activity before the strike, she just kind of joined because that's what you did.
0: Well, I think, just to interject for a moment, back then... In certain companies and businesses and industries, if you did not join, you were Mm -hmm. harassed, you were um, set aside, you were alienated, you were not allowed to participate in work activities, people would give you the cold shoulder. I think it was um, something that you had to do in a certain number of industries otherwise you would be like personal right and and
1: that is true but that was not the case at Kermagee. so there were quite a few employees that were okay. not part of the union and there was actually a vote whether or not they were going to dismantle the union um, during this time period so so okay. she, she she just kind of joined because that was kind of really her only means of protection but but after the strike even though they didn't gain anything she becomes fully invested in the union and what the union can do for employees right yeah so by the fall of 1973 karen is having a pretty rough go of it she had recently broken up with a boyfriend drew stevens who also worked at Kurt mcgee and one night in september of that same year she calls her friend connie and says that she's overdosed on drugs
0: oh wow so
1: connie rushes to her to karen's apartment and tried to convince her to go to the hospital but karen refuses and so Connie ends up helping her vomit. And then she takes her back to her house. Wow. All right. And as a result of this, Karen and Drew end up moving back in together. But it's not very clear on if they are together. They work different shifts. So they very rarely see each other. And they're, they're jealous of each other. They're kind of suspicious of each other. I'm not sure if they are a- an exclusive situation, if that makes sense. But they are living together. And sleeping together at some, sometimes kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Either way, it's just not a good situation for either of them to be in, right? Okay. So in early 1974, Kerr-McGee ends up increasing their production of the plutonium pellets, which means they had to increase their employee shifts to 12-hour working shifts and seven-day work weeks. So you don't get the weekends off anymore, and you work 12 hours.
0: What the hell?
1: Yeah. So, also, also, as a result of increasing the plutonium pellets, thus, there was also an increase in spills and contamination around the plant. Okay, Wow. And Karen starts to get concerned about possible contamination of herself and her coworkers because Carmgiee doesn't really have strong safety precautions, and they're not really training the people they bring in, especially the temporary workers. Like, if you're Mm -hmm. working, like, for the summer or, like, over the holiday, they're not really doing very much training. Okay? So, given all the stress at work and her miserable living situation at home, she goes to her doctor and says that she's depressed and she's having trouble sleeping during the days when she's working the night shift. So, she'll work all night and she comes home and she can't go to sleep to get rested for the following night shift kind of a thing.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And because this is 1974, the doctor prescribes her quaaludes. Oh, jeez. And according to Drew Stevens, Karen became dependent on them and she started using them as like a daytime daytime sedative and not as a sleeping aid. So now she's taking them during the day just to kind of calm her frazzled nerves. Like this is her state of stress at the time. Quaaludes are not knocking her out, right? (laughs) That was so crazy. And so as we know, Quaaludes are incredibly addictive and long-term use can lead to an increased tolerance, which explains why she'll take a Quaalude during the day and it doesn't knock her out. It yeah. just is an anti-anxiety thing, right? She's got yeah. this increased tolerance. So in August of 1974, Karen gets elected to the three-person union bargaining committee. She's the first woman in Kerr-McGee history to sit on any of their union committees across the country. Wow. And her assignment was health and safety. Okay. Uh-oh. And just Not prior. Not a great
0: fit with the woman who's on Quaaludes health and (laughs) safety that's the (laughs)
1: beginning of this okay so just prior to her election on the committee some strange things starts happening to her okay on july 31st karen is working the 4 p.m shift in the emission spectroscopy lab where basically she's just examining the trace amounts of elements in these pellets so most of the, the, the pellets are supposed to have high amounts of uranium and plutonium, but you can also have trace elements of, like, things like chromium and nickel. And as long as those elements are low enough, it's okay. If the element, if it's too high of these trace elements, you have to throw that sample out, right? Okay. So, well after she's finished her shift and has gone home, the health physics technicians examine the air filter papers in the lab during the three previous shifts. So, like, they're covering the previous 24 hours. Okay. And if the lab had been radioactive at any time, it's going to show up on these filters. Okay. So the filters before and after Karen's shifts were clean, but those used during her shift were highly contaminated. Hmm. And that doesn't make really any sense because if she had been contaminated during her shift, the papers would still show that contamination after her shift, but those were clean. Yeah. So, the technician examines the lab, and he finds a little bit of contamination around a glove box. So, this is the thing, like, you've probably seen it in a hospital, like, in a NICU um, ward, where, like, you have, you stick your hands through the holes, and the gloves are in the compartment that you're working in. So, like, you don't put the gloves on and open up a box. You stick your hands in the gloves. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So, that way, your, your, the gloves or the air doesn't get contaminated or anything like that. So, They find a little bit of contamination on one of these glove boxes. Okay. And after finding the contamination, the health physics office tells Karen and the two other workers that were there that same shift to provide weekly fecal and urine samples. And these are going to be tested for radiation by a third party. Okay. So the results of these tests showed that only Karen had been contaminated. But the levels were still really low. Okay. So it was considered an insignificant contamination. Gotcha. So this is right before she's elected to the committee. And when she, once she's on the committee, the chairman of the committee writes to the national office and is like, look, something has to be done at this Kerr-McGee local plant. And he talks about all of these safety hazards that they have. So in response, the national office tells the committee to start taking notes on all the violations they see. Don't tell Kerr-McGee what they're doing. And, and as, the, as the health and safety representative for the union, obviously that job falls to Karen. So she starts writing down notes on the contamination incidents, asking the health physics technicians questions and interviewing workers during her breaks and lunch hours. And she's that was keeping an all these yeah. <laughs> and she's keeping all these notes on a spiral notebook in her purse. Now you know why I wrote a script, right? Cuz this is yeah. 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 So the three union representatives presented their notes to the National Office in Washington D.C. on September 26, 1974, and they met with a man named Tony Mizoki Mizochi from the union's legislative office. And Tony knows the links between plut- plutonium and cancer. And apparently this is the first time anyone tells Karen Silkwood that it is dangerous to work with radioactive material. Mm-hmm. Nobody from kerr told her anything. Wow. Right? So on top of all of these safety violations she reports... Karen tells Mizochi that kerr was also doctoring their quality control reports and that the plant is sending faulty fuel rods to the nuclear plant in Washington. So potentially radioactive leaks in these fuel rods. And the following day, the three union representatives, along with Mizochi's assistant, Steve Wodka, met with the Atomic Energy Commission, who took over control of nuclear research from the Manhattan Project. We also talk a little bit about that in the Rosenberg episode. So when they meet with the AEC, they, they provided 39 instances of health and safety violations. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, the AEC promises they're going to investigate, but Mizochi and Wadka are kind of suspicious because it's like they're kind of in charge of all of the nuclear businesses, but at the same time, they're supposed to regulate them. It's kind of like regulating yourself. Right. So they're suspicious and they're like, look, we have this other plan. They tell Karen to keep taking notes on what she sees at work, and during the next union contract negotiations, which are supposed to start at the end of November, they're going to give the story to the New York Times. Oh. Okay. So Karen agrees to collect the information, and she promises not to tell anyone what she's doing, not even the other two people on her committee that she's there with. Okay. But... I mean, it doesn't take long for pretty much everyone to figure out what she's doing, right? right. I mean, she's, she's walking around, like, taking notes on a notebook. It's kind of obvious she's investigating something.
0: So that immediately puts her into suspicion by her coworkers,
1: Right. Well, they're kind of like, why is she snooping around? Like, why is she, you know, why is she all in everybody's business? She doesn't need to be in everybody's business. Yeah. So one employee, Wanda Jean Young, was contaminated because there were some holes in the gloves that she was working with. Even though the health physics office had inspected and marked the gloves as passing,
0: okay. there were five
1: holes in these gloves. So Karen goes to Wanda and says, "Hey, you need to get a nasal smear to see if you inha- inhaled any of this radiation." Oh boy! And the do- she- so Wanda goes and gets a nasal smear, and the doctor is there with her. When Karen walks in, the doctor's like, "What are you doing here? You don't have a right to be here." And Karen's like, "As the union representative, I definitely do have a right to be here." And it's kind of obvious to the doctor that Karen is the catalyst for Wanda coming forward and asking all these questions. Because Wanda's like, well, is this going to be dangerous? What about all of these young kids that work at the lab? Because their genes are still kind of changing and they're still growing up. Like there's 19-year-old kids, you know. Yeah. What's going to happen to them? So the doctor is obviously like, okay, you know, she didn't know this before Karen got involved. So it's pretty obvious that Karen is involved in doing something. And, she, you know, it becomes clear to Kermagee that Karen is poking around where, she, where they don't want her to be. Okay. So as the fall of 74 wears on, the stress of both working at Kermagee and secretly investigating them for the union are taking their toll. She's not sleeping, and she starts losing weight. She was already really small to begin with. She was mm. 115 pounds, and she dropped down to 94. Wow. And she also told a friend that she'd recently learned that 40 pounds of plutonium, which is enough to make three atomic bombs, are unaccounted for.
0: Oh, geez.
1: And she doesn't say how she learned this or whether she has any records of it, but by October of that year, she's pretty much spiraling. Nobody really knows what's going on, but it's pretty obvious to everybody that she's dependent on these quaaludes. Like, she's basically just popping quaaludes, all right? Oh my god, like Tic Tacs. Yeah. And at the end of October, Karen calls her sister, Rosemary, and she is hysterical. She says something's happening to her. Someone's trying to do something to her, but she can't talk on the phone about it. And she needs to see her sister in person. But her sister had a family, and she wasn't able to come up from Texas at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. So November 5th, Karen is working in the metallography lab. She's grinding plutonium pellets in one of those glove boxes. Uh And at 5.30 p.m., she takes a break and she checks her hands and arms for contamination, and she's clean.
0: Okay. okay.
1: She takes a 15-minute break, comes back to work for about another hour, and she is alone in the lab. And at 6.30 p.m., she checks herself again, and the monitor signa- signals that she's contaminated. Uh-oh. The health physics technician determines that she that her right sleeve and shoulder of the coveralls that she's wearing were contaminated more than 40 times the safe levels indicated by the AEC. Oh, jeez. She then goes to the decontamination room to see if her skin's been contaminated, and the technician found that up to 20 times the limit is on her left hand, right wrist, upper arm, neck, face, and then her hair. Okay. Then they take a nasal swab, and it not only comes back positive for inhaling plutonium, but it indicates high levels for a nasal swab. Oh. So she showers with a mixture of Clorox bleach and Tide, to remove any skin contamination. Was and that the sit- standard back then? Apparently, yeah.
0: Oh my god, that's so frightening. I
1: know. And so and then she had to sit under a dryer for thirty minutes, like one of those dryers at the salon. Right?
0: Okay. So
1: they measure her again, and this time none of her readings are above that limit from the AEC. Alright?
0: So she washed it all off. She was able to get rid of the contamination? Yes. Uh, okay.
1: All right. So as a precaution, though, the lab was put on respirator status. So meaning that everyone has to wear a respirator in the lab until they can find the source of this contamination.
0: That heavy duty, like stereotypical movie. Yeah, like a hazmat. Yeah, like yeah, hazmat too. Okay, got it.
1: And or just like a one that you wear just on your chest. It's like a, a rebreather kind of a thing. Yes. Yes. Gotcha. So they check the air filter papers. They are not contaminated. And a technician took the gloves Karen was using and fills them with water and holds them up. And there's no leaks. Okay. So So after how was
0: the radiation getting in there?
1: Yep. So after the decontamination, Karen goes back to work until 1 a.m. All right?
0: Okay. She checks herself
1: again for contamination, and she's clean. They never found out how she'd been contaminated.
0: And no one kept up with that? They didn't care that they didn't find out that just seems really frightening
1: well this is part of her complaint right that they're so lackadaisical about possible contamination that that was kind of it so the next day is november 6th so this is the day that the contract negotiations are supposed to start okay Sorry, Dahlia, just shook her (laughs) collar. I forgot to take her collar off. (laughs) At 8 a.m., Karen's working on some paperwork, and she's called into the health physics director's office to talk about the previous day's contamination. Okay. Less than an hour later, she's back at her desk getting ready for the negotiation meeting at 9 a.m.
0: She checks herself
1: for contamination before she leaves the lab, and the monitor shows her right forearm is hot. What the she washes it with soap and water.
0: Somebody's got to be putting stuff in her equipment. Yeah
1: oh, we're buddy, we're gonna get there. So she washes okay. with soap and water, but that doesn't remove the contamination. So oh, no. the health physics director figures that if soap and water can't remove the contamination, she's not likely to contaminate anybody else. It's like it's not going to slough what off of her the? skin. So he lets her go to the negotiation meeting. Oh. And he's like, you just got to make sure you come right back here after the meeting.
0: Oh, my God.
1: So the negotiations break for lunch around 1.
0: Okay. And
1: she joins the other members of the negotiation committee off-site for lunch.
0: Well that sounds really healthy and just good uh-huh. standard practice to have.
1: 1974. <laughs> yeah. at its finest. <laughs> <laughs> the meeting... Resumes after lunch and continues until about 3.15 when they agree to meet one week later. Okay. So they're going to meet again on November 13th. Karen then goes back to the health physics office to resume the decontamination. She still had 10 times the limit of contamination on her right forearm, her neck, and her face. And she's just
0: running around out there with this contamination, unconcerned.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, they told her that it probably isn't going to contaminate anybody else because if soap and water doesn't get rid of it, then it's probably not going to easily come off of your arm. Right, but for me,
0: I wouldn't necessarily be as concerned about contaminating, contaminating other people as much as, what is this going to do to me?
1: Well, uh, but, but think about how much more we know now than in 1974. Like, that's so kind of what we're dealing with. So she didn't think that there with.
0: would be any health risks if she's contaminated in that way. Not
1: at this point.
0: Oh, my goodness. Nobody told her. This is There's nobody, there
1: nobody at Kerr-McGee looking out for the employee safety. None. All right.
0: This is almost as bad as those poor girls in the factories that used to make the watches yeah. with the mercury yeah. and would get infected and die and not know that, you know, their teeth were falling yep. out, their hair was falling out, mm-hmm. and they didn't know that it was mercury poisoning. Mm-hmm. And no one told them and no one had any idea. Mm-hmm.
1: And the same thing with the radium girls. Same thing. Yeah. Yep. It's horrifying.
0: Yep. It's absolutely horrifying. So...
1: Nobody knew, nobody could figure out how she could have gotten so contaminated, because she'd only been in her office for an hour before she went to the meeting, all right? So she showers uh-huh. again, and she uses this, like, really acerbic scrub. I don't think it was the Clorox and Tide. It was some kind of other thing that it was, and also was like a pumice stone kind of a thing that she scrubbed with. Yeah. And she had, still had a nasal, and she had another nasal swab. And
0: Her skin has got to be just freaking raw.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which is not going to help prevent you getting more contamination.
0: Seriously? So,
1: she has another another nasal swab, and this is positive. Okay? And she, she doesn't know where this is coming from. So, she asked to have her car and her locker scanned, and they're both negative. Okay? Okay. So...
0: At that point, I would start to think that maybe whoever was doing the measuring Mm -hmm. was doing it incorrectly or lying. Wouldn't you?
1: I would think something's up. I would definitely think something's up. I would. would, For sure. I just, I don't know that I would continue to go back to work. But again, you have to think of what we know here in 2020 versus what they didn't know in 1974. So the next morning, Karen returns to work with a fecal and urine samples from the night before. And she takes another nasal smear. Okay? Okay. The levels are astronomical. Okay? In her like right
0: death astronomical. In her
1: right nostril, she had 45,000 disintegrations per minute. And basically that means it's disintegrations per minute are the number of radioactive atoms that have decayed in one minute. Okay? So 45,000 wow. in the right nostril. And she had... 44,988 in the left nostril and that's important because she had previously she had broken her nose when she was a kid and her left nostril had Uh been blocked ever since she was like nine okay and the previous nasal swabs had been like 150 in her right nostril and like 20 in her left so like her left nostril had consistently been significantly lower and now it's basically the same number and they're so high they're 45,000 Oh, my God. She also had 40,000 on her nose, 1,000 to 4,000 on her hands, arm, chest, neck, and right ear. Her fecal kit measured between 30,000 and 40,000. And this is right after she walks into work. So this tells the health physics director that she's not being contaminated at work. Something's going on at home. So they also check the, the women's locker room, the employee lunchroom, her car, and all of these are negative. Okay. Oh my god. So then they go to her house, her apartment, and in the kitchen, okay. the stove read twenty-five thousand, the refrigerator door read twenty thousand. Inside the fridge, a wrapper covering bologna and cheese read four hundred thousand.
0: What?
1: In the bathroom, the toilet seat cover read a hundred thousand, the floor mat forty thousand, the floor twenty thousand. Oh
0: my god. In her
1: bedroom. Her pillowcases and sheets read between five hundred and two thousand. Okay. According to Karen, when she was taking some when she was getting the the urine samples that morning, she spilled some urine on the floor and she wiped it out with paper towels and flushed the paper towels down the toilet. Okay? Uh huh. And then she got some bologna and cheese from the fridge and put it on the top of the toilet, of the closed toilet, to remind herself to make a sandwich for lunch. Which is really what? weird.
0: Right. This is is her story. Bonkers.
1: So then she remembers that she left some food at work from the day before, and so she puts the bologna and cheese back in the fridge. And when they test her urine sample, the health physics office determined that the sample from November seventh contained insoluble plutonium. So that means is insoluble doesn't dissolve in the blood, so then it can't be filtered out by the kidneys to go into the urine so somebody deliberately put insoluble plutonium in that urine sample not knowing that they could test the difference between insoluble or soluble or not knowing the difference between insoluble and soluble right okay so now the health physics director is officially suspicious of karen he thinks that she's spiking the urine sample and deliberately contaminating herself to embarrass kermagee
0: oh wow.
1: all right Later that evening, the health physics team returns to Karen's apartment where they pack up all of the contaminated items and they put them in plastic lined 55-gallon drums that are then going to be buried in a radioactive waste dump. Okay, They also send a lawyer. They don't send a doctor, but they do send a lawyer who gets Karen to provide a statement where she says she has no knowledge of how she or her apartment became contaminated, but she feels like it's being expelled out of her like that's how it's getting into her nostrils that she has so much contamination in her body that she's now exhaling it Wow. that's her opinion all right so the health physics director leaves karen's apartment around 8 p.m and left the monitor just inside the front door so he could check itself check himself in the morning before he goes into the apartment and then he double checks that the front and back doors are locked and karen is not home when he does this okay Karen returns home to her apartment after the health physics director had gone. And she tells Drew Stevens that the back door was unlocked and that she returned to grab something. She didn't say what. Okay.
0: And I'm just like on the edge here. <laughs> You've got yeah. me riveted.
1: When the health physics director returns to next morning, the monitor is gone.
0: Oh boy.
1: And her landlord would later say that there's a trap door in the ceiling of her bedroom closet. What? She says she only went to grab something from her, like, from the back door. I'm assuming the back door was close to the bedroom. But I don't know. Okay. So that's all we know. Okay. All
0: right. So Steve
1: Waka and the AEC investigators fly to Oklahoma, and they meet with Karen and Drew. And at that meeting, Karen and Drew are both checked for contamination, and they're clean. So after Karen recounts her three consecutive days of being contaminated, Wodka basically is like, okay, but do you have all your papers ready for the meeting with the New York Times? <laughs> what? Uh, what? Yeah. He's like, so like, can you still do this? Cause we're, we're meeting with them on the 13th.
0: Like no regard for her health, her well-being, her anything else. That's
1: kind of the way, that's the way it reads at least. So Karen assures him that she's going to have everything ready. All right. And the AEC's consulting physician suggests that Karen go to Los Alamos for a full body count. And that Drew and Karen's roommate go along just in case they were also contaminated. So Los Alamos.
0: What's Los Alamos? Los Alamos
1: is where the Manhattan Project was. That was where where all the research and the the atomic bomb was put together. It was one of the many sites. It, It was the main site. But after the bomb... After the end of World War II, it kind of became the the atomic science research laboratory. Okay. So it has the only equipment sensitive enough to do a full body count for full body radiation poisoning or contamination. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So when they get to Los Alamos, she takes a nasal and oral swab. And both of these are clean. And Drew and the roommate are both clean. But they did find some contamination in Karen's lungs from this full body count. But according to the physician there at Los Alamos, it's only half the maximum limit set by the AEC. So it's like it's only half of the of the, the dangerous limits that the AEC says you can inhale, basically. OK. And he says, you know, the official results aren't going to be in for about two weeks. But in my opinion, you're going to be fine and you're not going to have any long term health risks. OK. Uh, hmm. <laughs> so they get back to Oklahoma City on the night of November 12th. All right. Okay. The next day is going to be the follow-up contract negotiations with Kerr McGee. And that night, they're supposed to be meeting with a reporter from the New York Times. Okay.
0: Yes. Okay.
1: So on the 13th, they have the negotiation meeting and the local union set up a meeting at a cafe at 530 to tell the employees how the negotiations went. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. They, Karen goes to this meeting, and she is described as being quiet uh, as she listens to the head of the union tell the, tell the members that Kerr McGee basically didn't make any concessions on any of their demands.
0: Oh, boy. So she's Wan- got to be, like, feeling really angry.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Wanda Jean Young, the employee who had been c- contaminated earlier, noted that Karen drank iced tea, and she was leafing through some papers in a manila folder. Okay after the meeting karen and wanda talked privately and karen told her that she was scared that she was going to die of the cancer after having been so heavily contaminated and she believed someone had deliberately done it duh right so she points to the documents that she has in that manila folder Uh and says that she has proof that kerr mcgee is falsifying quality control records and is on her way to meet steve wodka and a reporter for the new york times she's not supposed to tell anybody this Yeah. Okay. okay, but she tells Wanda she confides in Wanda.
0: Thank God she did. So, I have a feeling this is going to come into play.
1: So Karen, Karen gets into her car. It's a 1973 Honda Civic, so it's just a year old. So it's oh pretty my God, much new, I remember right?
0: Those little buggers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and she also had some new tires on it to give the car more traction. Okay. Okay, keep that in mind too. Okay. And then she heads off to Oklahoma City for the meeting. She leaves at about 7:10 p.m. Yeah. Folders. The folder containing all these documents on the front seat of her car. Okay. Okay. We know that's the end of what we know. The rest is speculation. All right. Okay?
0: So according to like FBI or you know, law the enforcement. Oklahoma
1: Highway Patrol. Okay. All right. So the Oklahoma Highway Patrol later says that she was driving between 50 and 55 miles per hour down the highway. Just over seven miles from the cafe, her car crossed from the right side of the highway to the left and traveled 240 feet along the grass shoulder. Then it flew 24 feet over one end of a concrete culvert running o- under the road, and it smashes into the other wall at about 45 miles per hour. So she's driving along the shoulder. She hits the culvert, goes airborne, jumps the, the width of the culvert, and smashes on the other side. Oh, my God. Okay? Is what is what they think happens. The car flips onto its left side and the entrance to the culvert. Okay. All right. At around seven thirty, James Mullins and John Trindle come onto the scene, and Trindle drives to a nearby gas station to call the Oklahoma Highway Patrol to to report the accident. Just after Trindle left to call police, Kerr McGee employees Fred Sullivan and Law Godwin stop at the scene. Okay. Godwin's story is that his wife had a flat tire on that same highway about twelve to fifteen miles south of Crescent. Okay. And that shortly after 7, he picks up Sullivan, fixes his wife's tire, and then that's when they come out of the scene where they stop to see what's going on. They see a lot of people standing around the scene. They stop and ask what's going on. Yeah. So, Godwin is a quality control supervisor.
0: Interesting.
1: And Sullivan is a document control manager. At the same company. At kerr How convenient.
0: Mm-hmm. that They would just happen to be there.
1: Yep. Neither of them belong to the union either.
0: Huh. Interesting. So,
1: so Godwin steps down into the ditch and he peers into the car with a flashlight. According to him, it looked like the steering wheel had been pushed against Karen and it pinned her to the roof of the car. What okay. the heck? He said that she was motionless and that the blood on her face looked partly dried and that he couldn't detect any sign of breathing. And by now you have more bystanders and you also have ambulance an ambulances come on the scene And they lift all of them, the bystanders and the ambulance drivers, lift the Honda onto its wheels, and they have to cut the door open, the driver's side door.
0: Oh, my God. Jaws of life, right? Yeah.
1: Yep. And Mullins noticed that there were some papers on the ground around the accident, Uh, and Karen's purse is resting against the retaining wall about two feet in front of the Honda.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Karen is taken to the hospital but pronounced dead on arrival. Oh. And the responding officer picks up Karen's purse and hands a wallet to another police officer who had just arrived on the scene. Mm -hmm. This police officer previously worked for Kerr McGee and said he knew Karen. Wow. The responding officer noted that inside the purse were two joints, a pill, and half of a tablet. He then picks up the papers that are lying around the car and tosses them into the front seat of the car. Then the car is picked up and towed to a garage. Okay. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Drew Stevens and Steve Waka are waiting at the Holiday Inn in Oklahoma City with a reporter from the New York Times. Karen's supposed to be there at about 8. Oh, boy. But by 10, they still hadn't heard from her. And they start getting worried. So they call the head of the local union. He tells them Karen's been in an accident.
0: Oh, boy. All right.
1: So that's when they learn what happened. The following day, they go to the garage with Karen's father to get the car released because the police say we can't release it to just anybody. We have to release it to somebody in our family. Mm-hmm. And when they search the car, they find a picture of Karen. They find some old union papers and some articles on nuclear hazards and a small notebook. You know what they didn't find? What? The manila folder or the large notebook that she had been seen writing in while she was investigating the lab.
0: Oh, convenient.
1: Mm-hmm. So, an autopsy of Karen shows that she had trace amounts of alcohol and 0.35 milligrams of methylqualone, which is a lube, in her blood. And she also had 0.50 milligrams of an undigested quailude in her stomach. Okay. On November 15th, which is two days later, the responding officer files his accident report. He reports that Karen had been drinking and her ability had been impaired and that she had been under the influence of drugs. At the bottom of the statement, he wrote that witnesses interviewed stated they had advised Karen that she was in no condition to operate a vehicle. And then he drew a diagram of how he suspected her car had left the road. All right. So basically, he says she was drinking in on drugs and she fell asleep with the wheel. Here's the thing, though. None of her co-workers at the union meeting reported that she seemed tired or under the influence of anything. They all testified and filed... What's it called? They filed affidavits to that fact that none of them said she appeared under the influence of anything. Wow. So where are these witness reports coming from?
0: Yeah. For real.
1: This is the only report filed with the Oklahoma Highway Patrol about the accident. Wow. Yep. So, the national union... Hires a man named AO Pipkin, and he is the owner of the accident reconstruction lab in Dallas to investigate the accident. Uh-huh. So he's kind of a big deal at the time. So while, when he was hired, he testified at 300 trials and had investigated more than 2,000 crashes. And this I thought was interesting. Yeah. He also he investigated the crash that killed Jane Mansfield. Wow. Yeah, in 1967. So I thought that was so interesting. He has
0: some expertise.
1: Yep. And so, after he examined Karen's car, he found some fresh dents on the left rear fender and on the bumper.
0: So, it looks like somebody hit her.
1: That's what he thinks, yep. So, so the dents are concave, uh-huh. meaning they go in. So, they, they're not from being pulled out of the ditch by the tow truck. Right. Those would be convex, yeah, right? Yeah, right. So, his... He also noted that the sides of the steering wheel were bent forward, like she's holding the wheel and bracing against impact.
0: So like she's holding
1: it out like this and locks her elbows out. Right.
0: So his conclusion
1: is that there was enough evidence to support the fact that Karen Silkwood had been forced off the road.
0: Duh. (laughs) I Mm -hmm. think anybody could probably see that.
1: Yep. Just too many
0: conveniences, too many people in the area at the time that shouldn't have been there. Too many things lining up to think that this could have been an accident.
1: Right. So the Oklahoma City Medical Examiner says that he thinks that 0.35 milligrams of methoquilone were enough to cause Karen to fall asleep while driving. But eight independent toxicologists disagreed, saying he didn't account for her increased tolerance exactly okay so with things like that with things like like um benzodiazepines or quaaludes or morphine or things like that if you take enough you develop a tolerance so there's not really a uniform therapeutic dose or uniform lethal dose like the same dose that affects you may not affect me and the same dose that kills you may not kill me yeah so you can't just say Two milligrams of um, methicuolone is enough to kill somebody. You can't, yeah. you can't say that fact because if somebody builds up a tolerance, right?
0: But, you know, it's medicine back in the 70s, right? Like, how much did we really know? Right. <laughs> Not right. a lot.
1: I mean, we were prescribing Quaaludes for crying right. out So, Kerr McGee's official stance is that Karen Silkwood contaminated herself in order to embarrass the company. And they cited her drug abuse, quote, unquote, and possible bisexuality as this evidence of her wayward moral compass or whatever. But in the previous year, something like 70 employees at Carmagee have been contaminated. So why would one more contaminated employee make them look worse? And on the flip side of that, though, while it seems pretty clear that people knew Karen was stooping around and taking all these notes on safety violations, there's no evidence that I've seen that anybody knew she was going to meet with the New York Times. So did Kermigy really do this just to give them some kind of advantage in the contract negotiations? It doesn't really make sense, but it may make more sense though, when you go back and look into the 40 pounds of missing plutonium. So an investigator actually ends up looking in an FBI investigator ends up looking into this case after Karen's death. And he reported that he got information from government officials that it wasn't 40 pounds of plutonium that were unaccounted for. It was 120 pounds of plutonium that were unaccounted for from Kerr-McGee. Okay. So he tries to investigate this further, and he is explicitly told by FBI headquarters that it's not his business and he's not to look into it anymore.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And this is when things get <laughs> even weirder. So in 1976, the General Accounting Office... Uh, submitted a report to Congress that said there's no factual way the government can determine whether nuclear material is lost or stolen and that at least 11,000 pounds of weapons-grade nuclear material is unaccounted for at nuclear plants around the country. That was in
0: 1976. (laughs) Jesus. In
1: 1975, the Hudson Institute issued a study that warned about a quote-unquote gray market where nuclear companies use legal lo- loopholes to circumvent government controls on plutonium and uranium. And this is actually pretty believable because if you think about it, other businesses do this yeah. all the time. Other businesses use le- legal loopholes yeah. all the time. Banks do this right. all the time. So why would we assume that just because somebody's working with nuclear material that they wouldn't also find a way to yeah. do it, right? Question is why, though. Huh. So the theor- one of the theories is that there exists a nuclear black market where companies stockpile nuclear material either as an investment or to sell it to foreign countries. Oh, God,
0: that's even more frightening.
1: Yep. So this same FBI agent who reportedly discovered 120 pounds of plutonium missing from Kerr McGee also told friends that a few weeks before Karen Silkwood's death, the plant sent a shipment of plutonium to the Special Projects Program in Hanford, Washington, Except that Washington facility doesn't have a special projects program.
0: Okay.
1: So some nuclear experts believe that untracked shipments like this one were being diverted by the CIA to Israel. And there is substance to this theory, too, because there's something called the Apollo Affair, which is one of the fun things that I discovered looking in Wikipedia. And in the Apollo Affair, in 1965, 400 pounds of enriched uranium went missing from the Nuclear Materials and Equipment Corporation in Pennsylvania. And the CIA stated that they believe the shipment was sent to to Israel. Oh, boy. And uranium had a habit of going missing from this plant. An investigation found that they lost over 750 pounds of uranium over the years. Wow. It takes, like, 13 pounds of plutonium to build an atomic bomb, and they lost 750 pounds of uranium. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. So, yeah, so this thing, it I don't know how far this goes. <laughs> That's why I say I bit off more than I could chew a little bit, because I didn't realize what I was getting into when I was looking at yeah.
0: this. Okay. I have a feeling it's just the tip of the iceberg, too. It's not, like...
1: Yeah, that's what I'm saying like this is I didn't know what I was getting into and I'm like let me do a quick episode on Karen Silkwood no there's no such thing and that's why the Wikipedia page is so shocking at how like short it is and how much it leaves out but I think people are
0: just willing to not talk about it at all because they can't tackle the complexities mm -hmm. of it so they don't even try
1: it's really really complex like my brain was hurting and I'm like Jesus Christ what am I going to get to like Something that I can understand. And it's nuclear physics and
0: nuclear. (laughs) Dude, (laughs) that's that's very very hard for most of us to understand anyway.
1: Yeah. So, ultimately, Karen Silkwood's family sued Kerr McGee for the plutonium contamination of Karen. And at the civil trial, the jury renders a verdict of five hundred five thousand dollars in damages and ten million in punitive damages. Okay. An appeals court reduced the judgment to $5,000 because that was, they estimated that was the value of her estate, given her apartment and belongings. What? Yep. But in 1984, the Supreme Court restored the original okay. verdict. And ultimately, Kerr McGee ends up settling out of court for $1.38 million while not admitting liability.
0: That's a slap on the wrist, basically.
1: Mm-hmm. And in the last bit of craziness, in 1975, while Karen's parents are calling on Congress to reopen the investigation, their daughter, Rosemary, is injured in a car accident in Nederland, Texas, which is where they were all from. Uh-huh. And later, while they're, the family's readying the civil suit, someone calls their youngest daughter, Linda's high school, pretending to be Mrs. Silkwood. Okay. What? The caller tells the principal to send Linda outside so she can be picked up for a doctor's appointment. And they don't know who called or what they wanted, because Linda got suspicious and double-checked with her mother, who said, there's no doctor's appointment. Don't go outside. So somebody tried to kidnap Linda. Wow. All right. So Karen's dad believes that these incidents were intended to scare the family away. And, you know, whether they're targets from the government or Kerr-McGee, I don't know. But I think recently we've kind of learned that they don't necessarily... The government doesn't need to hire people to, like, do crazy things on behalf of them. If somebody yeah. believes in something strongly enough, they're going to do something crazy on their own. Yeah. So, Kara McGee closed the plant where Karen worked in 1975. Okay. And three months after Karen's death, the AEC... Reported that they had at least partially substantiated 20 of the 39 claims that Karen and the other committee members of the OCAW reported to them in September of
0: 1973.
1: Wow. And that's the story of Karen Silkwood.
0: Holy moly, that's a doozy. Isn't
1: that bonkers?
0: Yeah, they had me on the edge of my seat the whole time. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, it was I remember. I mean, I've heard the name bandied about, and mm-hmm. I do believe that I've heard a, another podcast at least one other podcast, talk about it. But I didn't remember these details.
1: You, I honestly think you could do like a full season of an investigative podcast on it.
0: Yeah. Oh, just about the nuclear industry mm-hmm. in general. Like, you could do an entire podcast just on that. Like a podcast dedicated every episode to that.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there probably is one.
0: Because when I looked up information on nuclear accidents, nuclear mm-hmm. disasters, there were just pages and pages yeah. and pages of it. So it's definitely something that, you know, I want to talk about more in detail at another time. Because yeah. there's so many just crazy nuclear events, including Chernobyl, that
1: mm-hmm.
0: you, there's just hours and hours and hours of content on that.
1: Yeah. And I think what's really interesting about that is all of the big nuclear accidents we know about, like Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima, those are all after yeah karen silkwood died so i think that that is super interesting absolutely i I think we should do it we should talk about that at some point
0: deal but anything else to add before we wrap it up
1: nope that's it um i like i said um i read a let me give you the name of this book that i that i read um there's been there's a couple books that are out there but this one that i kind of started diving into as my kindle app opens on my computer All right, so this is called, this book is called The Killing of Karen Silkwood, the story behind the Kura McGee Plutonium case. So that's what I read, and then I pulled a couple articles, like I said, so we'll link to all of those in the show notes. Awesome,
0: Good job. But this is the point in the podcast where we say so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Darcy, social media.
1: Yeah, we are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So we'll post some info there and we'll post some good pictures of the car accident and Karen Silkwood and things like that. There's some crazy stuff
0: out there from what I saw. Mm -hmm. But Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your best life. Bye. Bye, guys.